Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Blog Talk Radio. Hello. This is Blog... Um, <laughs> good morning, folks. This is Giggly Nation. I want to welcome everyone to the show today. I'm your host, Craig Settles. And uh, this year has been uh, very interesting in the uh, Gigabit Fiber Network arena, thanks in no part, uh, small, no small part, to Chattanooga and the Kansas Cities, Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, Chattanooga is a uh, great success uh, early out of the gate with their network, and uh, the two Kansas Cities are success stories waiting to happen. Now, the big question is, will San Francisco be the next gigabit city? Um, the, the San Francisco story actually began percolating a couple of months ago when Sonic.net uh, announced that they were building a gigabit network in uh, Sebastopol, which is in Northern California, and that that service would be a uh, gig service for $70 a month. Then uh, later down the road, we, we got the word that uh, Sonic.net was selected by Google to manage their network, Google's network, at Stanford University, and that started a little bit of a buzz going. <clears throat> and then last week, we uh, we heard that San Francisco may be Sonic.net's next major coup. So today, we have the man behind the buzz, uh, Sonic.net CEO, Dane Jasper. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Dane, welcome to Gigabit Nation. Thank you, Craig. And uh, let's start with a little background on uh, Sonic.net. You guys have been around for how long? Uh, we were founded in 1994 uh, as a, a good old-fashioned dial-up internet service provider. And... Uh, you know, in the early days of uh, Unix shell access, and uh, evolved to become a DSL uh, resale provider using uh, AT&T's uh, DSLAMs, and uh, we've been pretty successful in that. Uh, we provide that in retail, and also we, we operate a, an open aggregation network for about 70 other uh, smaller Internet service providers uh, around California and uh, and in a 13-state footprint, and uh, and then in 2006 we became a carrier and uh, began a facilities-based deployment of uh, our own DSLAM and uh, and POTS voice infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So, for the layperson, what's the what's the DSLAM? Because a lot of our audience are going to be people involved with broadband, but not necessarily on the technology or the carrier side of things. Right. Uh, the DSLAM is the DSL access multiplexer. So, you know, where you have uh, copper infrastructure and and you're utilizing DSL, the equipment in the uh, central office or uh, or cabinet is is called a DSLAM. And uh, in our case, uh, it's uh, a multi-service aggregation platform or MSAP uh, that manages uh, ADSL2+, uh, we have the capability to do VDSL, and that's planned for next year. POTS Voice, plain old telephone service, so standard landline uh, battery-powered uh, uh, voice services. 
uh, as well as carrier Ethernet products. And uh, and today in in the carrier segment of our business, about a third of the business is is carrier Ethernet products. So those are um, uh, multi-pair, generally symmetric products. Uh, we offer you know anywhere from uh, T1 speed up to uh, a 30 megabit symmetric product. So that's a uh, enterprise product targeted at sort of medium to large enterprise businesses. And uh and we have a lot of customers that utilize those products out of the uh out of the MSAP slash D SLAM as well. So and you mentioned that you you provide uh services in other states as well as California? We uh we are not facilities based uh beyond California. Uh we provide DSL aggregation services on a resale basis on AT&T's D-SLAMs outside of California. Okay. And uh and we have a an array of service providers who will use us to serve their customers in those regions. And the, I think the majority of them are uh California ISPs that have, you know, most of their customers in California, then they have some number of folks out of state. Mm-hmm. Um but uh you know, there's really I I think sort of three primary generations of, of product for us. Uh the the resale of AT and T D slams, you know, we began that in nineteen ninety eight and uh and as I said we do that for about seventy service providers over this thirteen state footprint. Then beginning in two thousand six we have our facilities based deployment where we're putting our own electronics on the end of the uh copper uh unbundled network elements, the the local loop unbundling where we lease only the copper um, and we put our equipment on it and, and create and operate the products. So that's sort of the second generation. And uh, and then the third generation is the fiber products where we're building outside plant all the way uh, out to the customer premise. And, uh, and that's obviously relatively new. Uh, we launch products, um, the 100 megabit and one gigabit products uh, in Sebastopol this year, and uh, that that's sort of the next step for us is to to move beyond the copper uh, to to owned and operated facilities all the way to the premise. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the uh, Sebastopol network. So that is a gig service for seventy dollars a month, right? Yes, we. Our our product philosophy is is uh, to craft one set of products that uh, deliver uh, over copper everything that we're capable of delivering, and then segue those to fiber. And uh, today in Sebastopol, uh, we have about thirty percent market share there. So mm-hmm. the the transition to fiber is to a great degree driven by both market share and market growth. And uh, so the the primary product offering, uh, this is a product we call Fusion Broadband and Phone, and the primary product offering is one phone line with unlimited nationwide calling, um, uh, free calls to Canada. Those are limited to eight hours, so it's not unlimited uh, internationally. Um, all the voice features, so you know, voicemail with uh, you know unified inbox. It'll put a, um, a the voicemail into your email inbox, uh, SMS notifications, Twitter notifications. So it's a next generation voicemail platform. 
uh, caller ID, uh, through calling and you know call waiting, and all the voice features you'd expect. So we deliver everything we can uh, on the voice platform. And then alongside that, uh, the Copper ADSL2 Plus, so the, the fastest possible uh, DSL technology uh, for the uh, for the length of the customer's loop, and that product delivers uh, up to 20 megabits over copper. And uh, there aren't different speed tiers, there aren't different prices. Uh, we deliver the the full potential speed, whatever maximum speed it will synchronize at. And there aren't any consumption caps. You know, we really feel like you know people want to use a lot of internet, they should use it. Um, and we deliver the combination of that unlimited voice line and unlimited broadband we sell for $39.95. As the market share has increased, the idea is to replace that copper provision service with a fiber provision service at the same price point. So we take the one phone line and up to 20 megabit copper delivered service and we replace it with one phone line delivered over fiber and broadband delivered over fiber at 100 megabit for 39.95. We also have a two-line product. The two-line product uh, delivers two phone lines. We find this is mostly being purchased by, uh, you know, folks that have a home office and they, they'd like a reliable landline for their, you know, outgoing calls. Um, in addition to a home line, and so we deliver two phone lines. And then we bond the broadband between the two. So that allows us to deliver over copper an up to 40 megabit broadband service, and we sell that for $69.95. And that segues into a two-phone line over fiber and one gigabit service. So we've, we've, we've got this one-price um, path towards fiber philosophy where uh, we'll provision everything we can on copper, and then uh, as uptake in the market, as demand in the market increases, then we would replace that with fiber over time. And uh, we really think that um, you know price point is less important than market share, particularly in fiber. And I think that's been one of the one of the questions we've seen is you know why aren't we charging more for the fiber? And fundamentally, you know, if you if you capture five percent market share after building a fiber infrastructure, uh, the, eco the economics don't work. So it has to be a, an aggressively priced product, and uh, and that's something that we haven't seen from you know others who've built fiber. You know, whether it's Verizon with their FiOS product or uh, Chattanooga EPB. Um, the the market penetration is a challenge. You know, I believe that the price should be ridiculously low in order to drive market penetration and that you know that's the 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 key success factor when you're building infrastructure that passes all these premises so isn't but then what about the issue of uh trying to make um a profit i mean uh, the as as we the general consumer kind of understand the dynamic you know, a company builds a bunch of fiber or a community builds a bunch of uh, fiber infrastructure, it costs them X. And at some point, they got to recapture X, and they recapture it by selling services at whatever the price point is. And and I think the first thought that would come to someone's mind is that, well, if that's the nature of the beast, if I spend a million dollars for infrastructure, I've got to get it back in subscriptions. If I only charge 
$70, then it appears that the company's strategy is they will sell, they will make their money back through volume sales, not necessarily by selling a few subscribers at, you know, 1000 a month or 2000 or whatever per month. Um, is that a correct read or am I missing something? Yeah, it, you know, it's the the market uptake is the primary factor. You know, fundamentally the cost of building these uh infrastructure heavy networks um, is very high. And and it's very high as an opportunity cost. So the way that the way that we look at the economics of building fiber to the home, um it ends up being somewhere between five hundred and one thousand dollars per home passed, which is a cost of opportunity. You know, whether or not you serve that customer is about you know, your marketing and your product positioning and pricing. And you know, to to make it very clear, if you were in the worst case to spend a thousand dollars per home passed and you got 10% market uptake, you've spent $10,000 to serve one customer who might be giving you, uh, you know, $200 a month, or I think, uh, you know, some folks are charging as much as 350 for a one gigabit residential mm-hmm. product. And if you're only serving a tiny, tiny percentage of the customers, you know, no matter how high the amount is, it's very difficult to create an ROI on that kind of capital investment. If instead you sell the product for... $40 for a 100 megabit service or $69.95, $70 for a 1 gigabit service, and you can get 50% market adoption. So now if you're spending $1,000 per home passed and you've got 50% market uptake, you've spent $2,000 per home served, neglecting some of the costs of actives, uh, which are, are dropping and becoming less of a factor. Uh, but you know the point is if you're getting... If you're able to bill fifty dollars a month over a two thousand dollar capital investment, you know, versus three hundred fifty dollars a month over a ten thousand dollar capital investment, um, you know, the number of customers is much more important than the the monthly rate. And an aggressive monthly rate presumably means a lot of customers. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the you know the other factor that I think. Uh, we've seen a lot of questions about is uh, bandwidth consumption and uh you know what what the consumption of bandwidth does to costs and i think there's a perception among consumers that's been you know created by carriers that you know the more you use the more it it costs them to serve and uh, that is true but it is marginal mm-hmm. and uh you know if we look at our 17-year history as a internet service provider, the cost of bandwidth, whether it's middle mile transport or edge transit to the internet at exchange points, um, you know, and taking into consideration, you know, peering opportunities and you know all the different ways we are able to clear traffic, the cost of internet transit and transport. Uh, as a percentage of customer revenue, has only declined for 17 years running. And certainly the amount of bandwidth that people are consuming is on the increase, but our costs to carry it, whether across our network or at the edge, have declined more quickly than the pace at which 
people's consumption is increasing. And uh, the other factor is that people don't use more bandwidth, consume on the inbound, more bandwidth just because they have more potential to do so. And this is really clearly illustrated when we look at um, tiered products. So you look at... um, uh, an ADSL one product where you know common bandwidth tiers are like one and a half and three and six megabit, and statistically, when we study those customers, the people who are at six megabit use more bandwidth. But the reason for that isn't that they have a bigger potential size of the of the delivery mechanism. It's the fact that those customers chose to spend more money. So where you're offering a one and a half megabit product that might nominally be, you know, twenty five, thirty, thirty five dollars is sort of the the market rate across the U.S. Um, versus a three megabit product, twice the speed is going to cost five to ten dollars more. A six megabit product is going to cost five to ten dollars more on top of that. And the consumer who chooses to spend more for their broadband uh, turns out to be the kind of consumer for whom broadband is more important, and they use more. Mm-hmm. But in the Fusion product, where we just sell uncapped, unlimited, up to 20 megabit with a phone line for 39.95, there's no self-selection of heavy consumers. And what we find is that nominally everybody uses a, a moderate amount. And when we take those customers and move them to fiber at 100 megabit, or we take the two line and move them to one gigabit, we don't find that their usage skyrockets. You know, just because they have the potential to go much faster, um, you know, they still only have a certain number of screens in the home. They still only have a certain amount of hard drive space to download things onto. And uh, they're more satisfied because what they ask for arrives in moments instead of minutes. But they don't suddenly then decide to consume a lot more. There's some nominal increase. Um you know, it's faster, so you have a tendency to do a little more, but it, it doesn't drive uh, it doesn't drive consumption or cost the way that you might presume that it would. And uh, so that's been an interesting an interesting lesson as we've deployed both copper and and fiber products. Mm-hmm. Well, that definitely that definitely tackles what I consider one of the big. Um, I don't know, debates that have gone on. I think that that because of the way the incumbents, the large carriers have presented the argument, you know, it's always been about, you know, these, well, the the, the bandwidth hogs. I mean, that, that whole myth of, you know, there's people out there that will just basically bring a network to its knees because you now have a gig option. <clears throat> and And what you're really saying is that um, people have needs, and they stay relatively the same. If anything, they're more appreciative of the fact that stuff comes across faster, but their needs pretty much stay with what they are. Yes. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say generally speaking, we don't see a huge shift in consumer behavior just because we provide a faster connection. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um, you know, I think that I published an article on the uh, on my blog a month or so ago about um, uh, 
congestion and capping uh that kind of dissects the the rationale behind uh behind caps and uh, and dealing with the problem of congestion you know the 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 technical issue uh is is peak hour congestion uh and that's what drives upgrades to the network uh if if everybody is uh downloading a bunch of stuff or streaming a bunch of entertainment content at 7 in the evening on a you know Wednesday night uh that's going to be your peak hour and uh hypothetically you need to build the network to accommodate that peak hour behavior and um uh the consumers who consume a lot of bandwidth throughout the entire month probably do have some behavior during the peak hour um but the issue isn't them it's that everyone else who generally makes lighter use of the network is during your peak hour hypothetically a a heavy user and uh so punishing those who consume a large amount over a long period of time um while it 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 might have a collateral effect of you know changing those folks behaviors to some degree uh you know i would argue that it it really has nothing to do with your your peak hour congestion problem and that there are better technical ways to to manage congestion should it occur in a network and uh, you know in our network we we um upgrade all of our transport middle mile connections and transit connections before they congest but uh but where their congestion you know i would argue that the right way to manage congestion is to slow down the person who's going the fastest you know if you've got somebody who's bringing something in at 100 megabits or 150 megabits and someone else wants to bring something in at at 1.5 megabit uh you know statistically you need to just slow down the fastest guy a bit until you know he is he or she is no longer impacting or impairing the network and instead you know what the the industry norm in the US has become is you know if you download 150 or 250 gigabytes then you either get kicked off the network or you pay a financial penalty and mm-hmm. um and the financial penalty is disproportionate to the cost of that actual consumption and uh, and I think both those steps are unreasonable but you know in the case I make in in the article that I that I published uh recently is that you know fundamentally this is about protecting the the uh the pay television business model and uh if if consumers were able to uh stream enough content 24/7 to entertain the typical american household and i don't remember the exact nielsen stats but uh you know the stats for uh the most recent year i could find were something like 6 or 7 8 hours a day worth of television is watched by the typical american household i think i also read that the average household has more tvs than people uh so you know a couple <laughs> tvs are on and uh you know when you add up that bandwidth it's well more than 250 gigabytes every month uh and uh you know particularly when you add in a little bit of high def and you know maybe eventually some 3d or something like that and uh you know you're talking about uh, you know a terabyte or more uh in order to replace the average entertainment of uh linear television pay tv in the average American household. And that's just the average. So, you know, there's households where the TVs are on a lot more and uh, and obviously those less. But, um, you know, my argument is that, you know, caps are not rational from the perspective of 
costs in the network, nor management of congestion during peak hour, and that their primary function is to interfere with the potential for a streaming business model disrupting the pay television business space. So, now with that particular piece of knowledge out, how does the consumer respond to that? What kind of leverage do we have? Because that's really what a lot of these debates and debates that have been before the FCC and all the back and forth in Congress and just the general noise coming out of, uh, I don't know, the Washington policy machine uh, has always been about this whole thing of, you know, the, the bandwidth hogs or why we have to do X and why we have to do Y, and they're imploring the government to not interfere with their right to do X and Y. But then where does that leave the, the consumer? Do we all wait for um, enlightened companies to come in with less expensive service? Do we protest? I mean, what, what's, you know, what would you see you know, I think consumer respond? You know, fundamentally, in... Uh, you know, most American consumers have relatively few broadband choices. And, uh, you know, from what I've read um, around the FCC's actions around net neutrality and, and obviously that debate in Congress and at the regulatory body, um, you know, fundamentally it's about disclosure. And um, uh, the... The cable companies, the telecoms that are providing access now are, are required to disclose to consumers how they're treating their bits. Are they transiting those bits across the network without uh, uh, slowdowns or management? Are they charging for consumption? And, uh, you know, fundamentally, usage-based billing uh, is a legitimate business model. And, and I would argue that it, it's, it's a rational business model if you are... Uh, in the business of selling pay television, and you don't want everybody to, to stop buying television from you, uh, the rational thing to do is to institute usage-based billing and uh, preclude the possibility that people would replace their uh, pay TV entertainment with streaming entertainment over the top. And uh, so, you know, the, where, where we've settled in, in the regulatory environment in the U.S. is that if there is usage-based billing or caps, those need to be transparent and disclosed to the consumer. The consumer needs to have a mechanism whereby they can see how far along they are so that there isn't a, uh, a bill shock at the end of the month if there's a, a consumption uh, cap that in, involves uh, a financial penalty. Um, but, you know, what can can consumers do about that? You know, well, you know, consumers have certainly agitated for transparency and I think achieved that. Um, but, you know, if, if they don't like the business model, um, you know, the only solution is to is to uh, patronize companies that are not capping. And, uh, and it's a little challenging because, frankly, I think a lot of consumers aren't near the caps and therefore don't care about the caps. And uh, so, you know, I think uh, one of the major carriers was quoted as saying less than 3% of their customers would be affected by a 250-gigabyte cap. So that would imply that you know those 3% would care, uh, and maybe those 3% would switch to another provider. Um, but that just leaves the other provider, you know, it's a little bit like a health insurer ending up with the, uh, the expensive-to-serve patients. Uh, you know, a, a service provider ends up with the 
the consumer who consumes the most because they've got the the policy of uh, of not capping, uh, whereas the majority don't notice or don't care because they aren't running into it and it isn't a problem for them. And so, you know, I think on principle, consumers should try to patronize companies that are furthering policies that they agree with, whether those are privacy policies or consumption policies. Um, you know, I think those are ways that you can speak with your wallet, so to speak. Uh, but not everyone uh, in the U.S. has that opportunity. And so it could be that you're choosing from your local cable company or your local phone company. There might be a wireless ISP. Uh, you know, the wireless ISP might have caps in place as well or do bandwidth management. And uh, and so you, you may be left with a little choice. And, uh, you know, that that's sort of the state of broadband in America today, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to come probably come back to that one in a little bit, but I do want to um, talk about San Francisco since uh, number one is close to uh, to where I am. But also, it raises the possibility that the next big gigabit city not not that Sebastopol is not a a, a player, <laughs> but uh, you know, as, as larger cities go, San Francisco then would join the ranks of Chattanooga and um, the the Kansas cities in terms of you know big cities with a gig or big cities poised to have a gigabit network. So tell us about the goings on in in the city by the bay. Yeah, San Francisco is a very exciting market for us. Um, with the fusion broadband product that we deliver over copper, San Francisco is our fastest growing market today. Uh, we serve from uh, nine different uh, telco exchanges there, and uh, and we have more customers uh, adopting the Fusion Broadband and Phone Service in San Francisco than than anywhere else. And uh, so it it's a it's a fast growing market for us, and uh, and that's a you know the a primary decision factor around uh, the fiber overbuild that that replaces the copper. Uh, I think it's a it's an intriguing story uh, from the perspective of, you know, fiber uh, to follow. So copper first, and then fiber following as uh, as consumers uptake the the copper products. And uh, and then also San Francisco is in the midst of a debate about uh, the sightliness of street cabinets. And um, and I think you know this is uh, they've been going back and forth in uh, you know between the board of supervisors and the planning department for some time about uh, about cabinet deployment and um, you know I think it's it's important that that um, debate take into account uh, that there may be competitors beyond the incumbents and uh, and that that could mean more cabinets. Uh and I think also we've got an interesting illustration in this deployment of, you know, a next generation future proof fiber product with a, a limited number of cabinets. Um the, the the full plan for San Francisco contemplates about hundred and eighty eight cabinets. And these are uh you know typically sidewalk mounted. Uh they're five feet tall and about two feet deep and uh and about four feet wide and uh electronics go in this cabinet in order to serve fiber that goes out to the premise and that fiber to the premise um can deliver you know in in uh in our footprint today we offer that one gigabit product uh so you know it's a 
it's an exciting future-proof investment in infrastructure um, with a, a moderate cabinet deployment. But for San Francisco, that is a subject of some debate because they're contemplating hundreds and hundreds of cabinets from uh, being deployed by AT&T. So I reached out last week to um, the neighborhood associations in the form of uh, the San Francisco Beautiful Group, and I talked to them about our deployment. And, um, you know, obviously they have some trepidations, um, you know, particularly around if AT&T deploys, you know, 700 cabinets. You know, that that's something they've they've had objection to, and, and they're in the midst of a lawsuit around that. Uh, but... Uh, if a competitor comes along and wants to do another 188, you know, even if it's a superior product, that's additive, and uh, and, and of some concern. So, you know, we felt like it was really uh, the right time to talk about that. Uh, I reached out to the board of supervisors a few months ago, and uh, and uh, spoke with the the member of the board of supervisors who was really instrumental in the the decision to uh, allow AT&T to proceed with their cabinet deployments. And uh, and I asked, you know, well, you know, what about the next guy? You know, will will we receive similar treatment? And uh, you know, they were unable to really give me a firm answer. You know, it was a, it was a hypothetical situation, so we felt like it was appropriate to to document that goal and uh, and make sure that we're we're in on that decision making process in the near term rather than you know hypothetically in the future. So is the deal that the AT&T cabinets, of which there are hundreds and hundreds, is that locked in, definite, no doubt about it kind of situation? Uh, the, the the current state as of of, of now, uh, you know, mid December, uh, 2011 here is that it is uh, that the construction is stayed right now, and uh, and there's a lawsuit pending between the neighborhood associations and AT&T. And uh, the City of San Francisco Board of Supervisors uh, did give their support for the project and cleared it to proceed some months ago. And uh, and construction did begin, uh, but now has been stayed by the court. And uh, so at the moment, it's uh, it's in the midst of this decision-making process about whether or not these cabinets are an environmental impact. Are, are they a visual blight? Uh, uh, in this urban environment, uh, and you know they're particularly concerning, I think, because they're a, a magnet for graffiti and vandalism, um, and uh, and that's unsightly. They can also obstruct sidewalks, and uh, uh, you know you really don't want to you know further narrow the the uh, the walking area or uh, or wheelchair access for folks. And so the question is, you know, is there uh, is there an impact to the environment that is significant uh, for for these cabinets and uh, while most communities have uh, have allowed cabinets to to be deployed around the US uh, and there's federal regulations that uh, that allow for cabinet deployments uh, you know San Francisco's really been uh, uh, you know I think active in the debate around what those cabinets mean to the public and uh, and and what they mean from the perspective of Visual blight or obstruction of walkways balanced against the delivery of next generation products and and I think it's a it's an important and healthy debate so are we in a situation where 
these uh, cabinets are necessary for all types of communication because clearly not everywhere where there are these cabinets we actually have fiber services or are they are they one and the same? I mean, you don't have the cabinets unless you have a fiber infrastructure. I guess maybe people need to understand where the cabinets come from initially and are the cabinets for fiber infrastructure smaller, sleeker, whatever, than the cabinets for whatever else they're being built for. So the um, the cabinets that AT&T deploys, by and large, are for delivery of copper to the premise. Hmm. So this is a um, it's a deployment technology called FTTN or fiber to the node. The node is the cabinet, and uh, and then copper is used for the the remaining portion from there to the premise, and uh, you know that might be a few thousand feet nominally, and by bringing fiber most of the way to the home or premise. Um, it's possible to deliver faster services. And um but they do need to be pretty close to homes. And uh you know, so if you uh if you look at the uh the serving map, they need to be within a few thousand feet of, of all the homes. And uh and there's a certain density of deployment in the cabinet. Uh but it's still a DSL product. Uh so it's it's DSL to the premise, it's just shorter length DSL. And uh our uh, build-out philosophy is instead fiber to the premise, or FTTP, or if it's residential, FTTH, fiber to the home. And uh, so for us, that means far fewer cabinets um, because we don't have the same distance limitations that the copper necessitates. Um, you know, fiber can go much further, much faster, obviously. And uh, so... We only uh, only need about one quarter the number of cabinets uh, in a deployment where cabinets are used to house the active electronics. So the the infrastructure brings um, a small number of fibers uh, to a cabinet. Uh, that's a point of aggregation. There's very high speed links from there back to the rest of the network, and then from the cabinet. Uh, electronics, which drive the optics, which connect to the fibers, which go directly to each home uh, to serve the optical equipment in the home, and uh, that that style of infrastructure is uh, a little less intensive in the cabinet quantity, uh, effectively. Are the cabinets the same size? They're roughly equivalent. Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, they might they might be uh, you know six inches or a foot skinnier or fatter for one or the other, but you know, basically, what's what's in the cabinets is is pretty similar. Um, in the fiber cabinets, there's there obviously isn't all the cr copper cross connecting, and that takes some space because you have to have uh, fusing protection to protect the electronics. So there's some more space in a copper uh, uh, infrastructure that's required. So fiber gains some benefits uh, because it's a little bit smaller just physically. But I would say the cabinet that houses a couple thousand people in a fiber-to-the-premise environment uh, is pretty similar to a cabinet that might house, you know, give or take 500 people in a copper deployment. Um, right. So you said, okay, so it's really just, it's, it's primarily an issue of the quantity of them. And it sounds like then AT&T is looking to increase the number of cabinets so that it can increase the quality of its um, 
DSL delivery. Yes. And, okay. Uh, and deliver and deliver faster service that allows for delivery of television. And uh, oh, right, so the old the, TV thing. Yeah. So that's the Uverse platform, and uh, you know this is a you know it's a worthwhile network upgrade. It's it's uh, in San Francisco, certainly long overdue, and uh, you know I think as a as a resident of the area, I certainly support the concept, and uh, and as somebody who's you know also hoping to deploy cabinets, you know I think as a policy decision, we need to accept as a modern society that there will be infrastructure. You know there are traffic signals, there are boxes that control the traffic signals. You know there are uh, boxes that deliver uh, coaxial cable, cable TV, and cable broadband. Uh, you'll see cabinets up on poles. You'll see little uh, lumps on people's lawns. You know this is the this is the natural you know, infrastructure is a natural part of a modern landscape, and uh, and I think we need to accept that in some form, but we also need to make sure that it is not um, unsightly and unreasonable, and um, so there's a balance to be struck there uh, that needs to take into account uh, you know reliability of next generation products. Uh, maintainability, um, uh, as well as uh, the, you know, how ugly is it, and how can we mitigate it being ugly in the way, et cetera. And uh, I think San Francisco is uh, is a unique challenge because they have such a problem with graffiti, and uh, and you know, the cabinets provide, you know, they're like little signposts by the. They're like little blank billboards beside the road, and they're, they're right. Really and it's a yeah, billboard market waiting to be filled. In some, some yeah, and they're a very tempting target for for the uh, for the taggers that are that are out there marking their territory, and uh, and that's you know I think that's I get the impression that that's one of San Francisco's principal concerns is you know how, how do we deal with uh, graffiti and tagging, and and there are lots of existing cabinets, and if you drive around San Francisco. You'll see ones that have been painted over and over and over again. Uh, you'll see ones with tags on them, and uh, and it's really a, it's really a challenge. Maybe the city should consider turning the uh, cabinets into a way to foster the creativity of taggers, rather than trying to prevent it. And that might, uh, you know, because if you're going to be able to put your own sort of neighborhood, you know, tag signature, if you will, on a, on a cabinet like legally. Well, number one, what's the fun in that? So that probably would take away some of the, you know, desire. But then it may it may turn out to be a creative solution to a otherwise vexing problem. Because I mean, well, when you look at some sort of the benefit of the technology, you know, what we've come down to is that there is a net there is a needed piece of the infrastructure. So really, what we're talking about is an aesthetic, a battle of aesthetics, almost more than anything else. So figure out ways to. To, to rethink the issue as far as what we're trying to fight or protect well, against, that kind of thing. And I think San Francisco's been very uh, forward-thinking in that. Um, you know, you'll see a lot of um, buildings and alleys in San Francisco where they've encouraged some amazing murals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's you know, it's, it, it's definitely the case that if there is uh, a, a true... Um, you know, interaction between the neighborhood and artists and 
um, whether it's buildings or alleys or brick walls or, or cabinets, uh, you know, if, if a cabinet has been uh, made part of the neighborhood in, in, in an artistic way, I think it's a lot less likely to be getting tagged than if it's just a big beige blank box. Um, but, uh, you know, that would be, you know, I'm sure there'd be a lot of debate about, you know, who we're going to let paint the cabinets up <laughs> and uh, what they're going to look like and those sorts of things. And and some folks would rather that uh, that they sort of disappear in the landscape, you know, being just another beige box that sort of fades away. Right, and, right. And uh, so, you know, I don't really have a, a position on that one way or the other. But uh, it's uh, it's certainly something we're really interested in uh, in seeing how the debate turns out. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit uh, about the community involvement. I mean, as you probably know, I'm a big advocate of uh, community involvement with broadband deployment because if <clears throat> broadband is to achieve the types of economic goals, the type of healthcare, uh, you know, sort of transition to a 21st century healthcare delivery and so forth, the infrastructure is important, and the best way to ensure that you get the right infrastructure is that you have a voice in the process. I mean, whether it's through um, public-private partnerships, whether it's through co-ops, so forth and so on. Um, in Sebastopol and potentially in San Francisco, what will be the community's uh, ability to have some sort of um, uh, influence over how broadband impacts their communities, their respective communities. Our uh, our primary guide for that has been our customers in these communities, and uh, you know, as I said, in in Sebastopol, we serve about thirty percent of the market, and uh, you know, the message that we've consistently gotten from customers is we'd like to go faster, and uh, and this is particularly pressing. You know, for folks who, you know, they might be on a DSL connection and getting three or six or less megabits, and uh, and they really see that, you know, getting ten or twenty or fifty or a hundred is is a key to their enjoyment of of the network as a whole. And uh, so, you know, our primary guide for deployment has been, you know, where are our customers that are on the Fusion product today? Uh, and you know how can we continue to increase the speed for those folks so that they will spread the word, stay on the product, you know, tell their friends and neighbors, and you know that's part of the business formula for us. Um, the uh, you know we are a little bit different uh, from other carriers in that we're not heavily pushing a triple play product. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas a lot of cable and telco are now, uh, you know, they really want to structure things so that you buy phone, internet, and television. And uh, to such a great degree that, you know, in many cases, at least for the first six months or a year, it's cheaper if you take all three than if you don't. Um, You know, taking uh, internet and phone alone would be more expensive. Um, You know, our... uh, we, we offer a television product today. We are in partnership with uh, DirecTV on a satellite television product. Um, but, you know, we don't make it a uh, an imperative part of the product. There's a uh, there's a bundle discount, $10 a month, but it's nominal, and uh, and it doesn't create a uh, it doesn't create a forced bundle that's basically imperative that you you do both. 
And uh, and I think you know one of the things that communities get a little bit frustrated by is you know corporations saying, well, you know, here's this bundle of products. We're going to sell you a a broadband connection that is crippled by caps, and uh, and a phone service that's uh, overpriced, and a TV service that has channels that you don't want. But to get the channels you do want, you got to buy a lot of extra channels. And uh, and before you know it. A year or two in, you're writing a check for you know 150, 200 dollars every month, uh, and uh, and I think that communities get frustrated by that. We have a more simplistic product set, and so we benefit from uh, you know having sort of one product, one price all the time. 39.95 is what the vast majority of our customers are are buying today, and whether that's on uh, on copper or fiber. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I discussed uh, at the GigaOM event uh, the differences between serving a residential customer base and a business customer base. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, in that conversation, you know, I, I was a little surprised because I felt the business customer was almost the better customer to have because you don't have to deal with issues such as churn and they're willing to pay more for 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 the service, if, you know, for a premium service because it's integral to their business. But you had a different take on that. I think we should explore that again for our audience. Yeah, it's it. Uh, you know, today we offer copper services to um, residential and what we would call very small business. So, you know, this fusion broadband and phone service is available with one or two phone lines uh, for businesses. We'll have a very small business. You know, this will be a, uh, a cafe, a salon, a restaurant. Uh, we'll take that two-line service, and they'll use that to run their business. And and they behave, frankly, a lot like a consumer would. They consume a certain amount of Internet, and it fits within the the uh, normative behaviors and uh, and the price point of the product. Uh, our, uh, our price points in business are slightly higher than residential. Um, so the $39.95 product becomes $49.95, for example, when it's sold to a business. Uh, as we've deployed fiber, uh, we've deployed fiber to date um, uh, only in residential areas, and uh, and we have not deployed to the businesses. And uh, you know, I'm I'm very um, uh, aggressive and optimistic around uh, you know not capping consumers and, and keeping costs in check. Um, but I have some concern <laughs> about what happens when you provide a, a gigabit of fiber to a business. And, you know, fundamentally, the consumer's behavior is mostly to consume. They will mostly download things, uh, whether that's uh, streaming video entertainment sort of at the bigger bandwidth side, you know, system updates and apps and software and, and so on. Uh, th- they're going to click things and get things, and their consumption of that. Uh, will be constrained by how many screens they have that they're streaming high def Netflix to, for example, or uh, um, how many hard drives they have that they're that they're downloading content to, and uh, you know fundamentally, eventually they run out of screens or they run out of hard drives, and the amount that they could consume uh, is constrained by those practical realities. When you instead provide a connection to a business. And they've got a hundred employees or a thousand employees. Um, it's uh, it's much more difficult to model typical behavior. You'll have one business that has five employees. It's a restaurant. They got 
one or two computers, and they're busy serving people and cooking, and they behave a certain way. And then you'll have across the street, you know, a business that's high-tech and doing development. They might build a little data center in their basement, have 10 servers and 50 people, and they'll use a heck of a lot more. And uh, so I'm a little hesitant around the product design uh, for, uh, you know, the mid-size business to large enterprise client uh, with the fiber products, where copper products kind of naturally constrain their ability to create any impact. Fiber products remove those constraints and, you know, make the statistical behaviors more important. So for that reason, to date, we have not designed and deployed a a business version of our fiber-to-the-premise product, meaning that it is only a fiber-to-the-home product for now. And uh, I think as time goes by and, you know, we continue to, uh, to take on more customers in that platform, we'll be revisiting that and thinking about what that should be. You know, I'm real hesitant to put... Uh, put any caps on consumption because you know clearly that's a position that we've uh we've come out against uh, but you know how do you control costs in an environment where you know somebody could set up a little server farm in their basement and uh in residential we have less concerns about that uh than we would in a business environment so is it possible that other providers might piggyback on to your infrastructure to provide that. So, for example, take San Francisco, right? So if you bring in a gigabit service to San Francisco, I am pretty sure that at 70 bucks a pop, it's going to redefine the landscape because people are going to want to buy <clears throat> that service. And you will probably have a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, home-based businesses that will just be, you know, ecstatic and so forth. But clearly there are large businesses in um, San Francisco, and I think their access to fiber uh, is probably limited in some respect, um, unless Verizon has done some major, you know, unless the big carriers have put some major fiber stuff in that I'm missing. But um, would not there be the opportunity for someone to partner with Sonic and then be able to serve those larger business customers? Well, I'll I'll give you a two-part answer. Um, You know, one is when we sell a gigabit product to a premise for $69.95 with two phone lines, um, we need to sell that product over and over again to premise after premise. So we're going to bar resale. So we wouldn't allow somebody to buy that product and put a wireless antenna on their roof and share it with 100 of their neighbors because that guts the entire model from the perspective of, the need to sell one to each home, so to speak. As to the business customers uh, in San Francisco, today there is broad um, fiber broadband availability in San Francisco. Um, There is facilities-based fiber from carriers like AT&T itself. Uh, We use their infrastructure to sell 1 gigabit and 10 gigabit services to businesses in San Francisco today. There are competitive fiber optic providers like MFN AboveNet and XO Communications, both offering infrastructure in San Francisco. So for many, many businesses that are in um, sort of the business districts of San Francisco, you know, through you know Market Street and the Financial District, through uh, through South of Market, uh, down to the data centers, uh, you know, down Turner Paul, 365 Main, there's lots and lots of fiber available and gigabit. 10 gigabit and 40 gigabit services are pretty common in San Francisco for businesses today. 
they're not $70 a month. <laughs> you know, that price point is dependent upon consumer behaviors that fit within that infrastructure. Um, but uh, but gigabit and gig, above gigabit products are available to businesses in San Francisco and most of the Bay Area really broadly today. Okay, so then let's flip this back around. Let's take the smaller communities, uh, the communities like Santa Rosa and Sebastopol. Um, is there conflict then in trying to deliver a service in a community that doesn't have those same fiber options for large businesses, but they make a part of the community. Meaning, can I go to a place like Sebastopol where there are maybe 100 small businesses and five large and be able to support all of them? Because I think from an economic development standpoint, you know, the city officials at Sebastopol are going to want to support all possible businesses because that represents a boost in the economy for them. Right. Yeah, and it, it it's an open question and you know, I think we we haven't been doing this long enough to know the answers to the economics around the business case for those larger customers. And uh uh you know, I think if if folks have the impression that that fiber and speeds of gigabit and greater are not available uh in their communities today, you know, they're they're mistaken. Uh, you know, in in every community in the greater Bay Area, uh, we're able to deliver a gigabit or 10 gigabit product today to a business. It's just a very expensive product. What's disruptive about fiber to the home is that it brings it to the home instead of the commercial premise, and uh, and that the price point comes down uh, to this much lower level. And uh, but. You know, fiber at gigabit and above to the business is is available in, in virtually uh, every community in the greater Bay Area and most major metros in the U.S. today. That fiber infrastructure may be the incumbent. It may be an AT&T or a Verizon. It may be a competitor, uh, you know, a Telepacific, an XO, uh, or a Sonic.net. Um, but, you know, businesses often have a choice today. But the economics may not create the kind of business disruption and innovation that you would like to see. And, uh, you know, in other words, you might be getting a gigabit for, for many, many thousands of dollars instead of hundreds. And, uh, you know, the question is, you know, is that does that really create disruptive business development? And when you say disruptive business development, you mean new businesses moving in or new uh, communication service providers moving in? Well, I think no new businesses using the broadband um in ways that we might not have imagined. Um you know the the next Twitter or 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 Facebook or or Netflix. Right. Um you know to today, you know, obviously there's no barrier to those businesses starting and existing. Um you know, they're uh I think particularly with uh, the Amazon web services uh platform and cloud computing uh you know there there isn't a barrier to to people creating well scaled large national and international data services um but the the question comes down to you've got a vacant building in uh, community x uh i could deliver fiber there uh but at 1 gigabit it's uh you know hypothetically it's $8000 a month well does that really further that building getting leased and and built out um and 
you know, at those sort of price points. And I think that it's through this broader deployment of fiber that we begin to see the cost of its deployment plummet. So instead of stringing one strand out to one specific building and bringing with that a lot of construction costs, you're doing many to many and through that achieving economies of scale and then we may see uh that the cost of these things these things drop. But I would say, you know, by and large the folks that are creating content are going to create it out of cloud computing, um, you know, whether it's Rackspace or AWS, uh, they're going to create it out of uh content delivery networks, they're going to create it out of large data centers. Gotcha. And uh whereas consumption is a point of activity. Uh the consumption happens where the people are. Um you know where it's end user consumption and and if we're delivering 100 megabits to a business uh is it going to change their business model or behavior versus uh, 1 gigabit to a business that's got 10 50 100 people and uh, and I don't know well I do know that we just ran out of time <laughs> I think we I think we've uh, stopped broadcasting so I'm not sure if anyone's going to hear my closing comments but um officially for the record I will thank you for being here uh, this has been an extremely informative discussion and one that will probably call you again because I think there's more to be said about uh, this topic and also just finding out how you guys are progressing. Yeah, so, well, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity, Craig. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Craig. Bye-bye. Bye. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.